This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. These events, they are really violent events. So you can imagine two objects of approximately the mass of the sun being uh, accelerated against each other with um, an incredible, incredible speed. And because of that, in the very final moments before the collision, there is a disruption of the neutron star. And that is what creates the fireworks, so to say, that we can observe. That's Marcella Soros Santos, a young woman who grew up in the Amazon rainforest and is now operating the camera she helped design and build that was able to capture those cosmic fireworks. Hailed as the science breakthrough of the year in 2017, sighting and recording the collision of two neutron stars way out in space may help solve one of the biggest mysteries of the universe. Why is it expanding at an ever faster rate? This is so much fun to talk to you today. We all have lapses of memory, but I'll bet you can remember exactly what you were doing on August 17th of 2017. Definitely. I will never forget uh, that day. It was uh, very special for, um, uh, for all of us who were involved in that, um, that particular event. Um, <laughs> in my case, in particular, I have to say that I was in bed when I first um, received the alert. And that was because it was the end of the observing campaign for that season. And since we didn't have any spectacular event until that point, um, I thought, well, okay, the season was good. It's over. I have to move uh, from Chicago to the Boston. Um, this is a good date for uh, for doing this move and so on. So I was preparing to move when in, in early in, in the wee hours of uh, of the morning, I receive uh, the phone call saying. We have an alert. That's a big one. It's a big event. A, hu- <laughs> a huge event. A, a first a first for mankind, the humankind. What was the alert about? What were they telling you was happening? The alert um, informed us of uh, three key things about that particular event. That it was a collision of two neutron stars, that it had happened uh, a few uh, minutes before that point was of high signal to noise and at a distance of 40 megaparsec, which for us astronomers means it was right here, really close, right? So um, f- this was really a gift, you know, because um, it was likely to have a bright counterpart. And in the case of my team, that is the, our specialty is to um, look at look for the. Um, optical bright counterpart of the um, merger events that the LIGO detectors can capture. And so we sprung into action um, at that point. So we've talked on this show before about LIGO, which was uh, this amazing device that's, uh, there's several of them around the world that detect gravity waves. And when two huge objects spin in and merge, spin in together and merge, you get 
a recording of the gravity wave that's generated from that, right? And your job then, would, the reason the alert was so important to you, as I understand it, was that you wanted to get an optical view of this collision. You wanted to see the light that came out of the collision. I don't know much about how neutron stars are formed, but I guess for this part of our conversation, we really need to just know that these are, this is a gigantic event, right? These are, are they, are they more massive by far than our sun? Neutron stars typically are between one and a half and two solar masses. That's the typical mass. So they are more massive than our sun, but not by too much, right? By a factor of two approximately Uh. at the most. Um, But you have to imagine that what we are talking about here is that in the final moments before the collision, these uh, neutron stars, which are rotating right uh, around each other, um, in the very uh, last moments uh, before the explosion, their speeds are significant fraction of the speed of light, mm. 30% or, or something like that. So um, these events, they are really violent events. So you can imagine two objects of approximately the mass of the sun being uh, accelerated against each other with um, an incredible, incredible speed. And because of that, the neutron star material cannot hold itself together anymore. And so in the very final moments before the collision, there is a disruption of the neutron star. And that is what creates the fireworks, so to say, uh, that we can observe. And those fireworks, as as bright as they are, are so far away. Did you need a new kind of camera to be able to record it? Would, if you didn't have this new camera that you you personally worked on, would you have been able to record that? In this particular instance, this event was very nearby, so it is uh, possible that um, uh, we could have observed with another instrument. The difficulty in doing this with um, a smaller uh, telescopes is that um, you have to cover a very large area of the sky to try to find really a needle in the haystack. Mm. And if the objects are far further away, they are very, very faint. So in the case of this particular event, um, there were actually other telescopes that were um, all uh, trying to um, uh, make this spectacular discovery. And several of those telescopes also detected the signal, Mm. perhaps not with as much signal to noise as we did, but they did also detect it. I'm always really interested in whenever a scientist creates the tool that they're exploring with, observing with, there's a long history of that in science. And it it seems you have to think like an engineer as well as a creative scientist. And what did you go through doing that? What did, what, what was your part of working on the camera that, that was so sensitive this was for me one of the most amazing experiences. I think you hit the the nail in the head here that sometimes you find yourself being more of an engineer than um, than a scientist. So in my case, working on the dark energy camera, uh, which is the instrument that we are talking about here, um, this was uh, really fantastic. I joined the experiment when in 2010 when the 
construction was already taking place for this project. And um, what was needed at the time was somebody who would have the experience of the scientist, but who could work with the engineers in into making the instrument the parts that were working so well together as components to actually work together when you know when they were um, put on the telescope. So early on in the um, early phases the, in 2010 and 2011, I was uh, responsible for developing a series of uh, tests that would verify not only that the parts were working independently, but that when we put them together and assembled the entire instrument, that things were still working as they should. And about a year and a half later, I find myself an expert on this instrument. So when they <laughs> needed somebody to go to the, to the site in Chile to oversee the um, um, installation on the telescope, they asked me if I um, could go and uh, I spent a few months there, actually, uh, working on the installation of the camera and doing a lot of the same type of work, which is, um, you know, you unpack and uh, I call it an extended Christmas because it's uh, <laughs> um, unboxing each day a new box. Uh, you unpack, you um, assemble that part, you test it, verify, compare with the performance that you uh, measured before at the lab and um, check a box if it's okay. And if it's not okay, then you have to get creative and figure out a way to make it work. So that was uh, was was fun. And um, I am very proud also because now every time I see anything, even if it's not related to my favorite science topic, every time I see anything coming um, from that camera, I feel a little bit proud and I feel like, oh yeah, I helped make it happen. So this was a huge event because nobody had ever seen and heard a collision of this kind before. Absolutely. And sci- I, I, I saw that Science Magazine called it the breakthrough of the year. And a, a year before, they had called the LIGO instrument a breakthrough, the breakthrough of the year. So what do you get out of the gravitational signal combined with the light signal? Why do you, why do you want both? Why isn't one mm-hmm. just good enough? Yeah, so the analogy I like to use to explain why we want, whenever possible, to capture both the light and the gravitational waves um, is equivalent to, imagine you live close to a busy intersection and you hear a car crash. From the sound of it, you can already infer certain bits of information, Um, but you can only really see the details if you go to the window and look, because then you can see, for example, make a model of the two um, cars that collided. You can see if there is somebody hurt, if um, the uh, environment around it is going to be, um, you know, all clogged up and and, and create a um, traffic jam or something like that. All those in- those pieces of information come from the combination in this uh, analogy of what you can see and what you can hear. And in the case of the collision of these um, astronomical objects, that is exactly what we do. We combine the information from the gravitational waves as if it were the sound in this analogy and um, the, com- the information from the 
uh, optical counterpart, which would be the equivalent of uh, what you can see. And with that, you can reconstruct a number of pieces of information that you couldn't otherwise put together with only one part of the other. What would they be? What information do you get? For example, one of the um, important pieces of information that you get is the chemical composition of um, the material that is produced in the merger. And that means the abundances of the elements. We know that many of the elements of the periodic table are generated in those environments. And in fact, they contaminate the universe in regions where, for example, uh, billions of years later, a planet like Earth could emerge and 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 have this richness of, of um, elements that we uh, that we detect that we have around us. Um, but the abundances, how much of these materials are produced and what are the mechanisms and so on, these are questions that we can only uh, answer observationally if we can capture the light, because that's where you're going to capture the signature of each element and will tell what is the relative abundances. Uh, another piece of information that is important that we get um, from combining optical signals and gravitational wave data is um, information about the overall rate of expansion of the universe. The idea being that the gravitational wave signal contains information about the distance, the absolute distance to the event. And the optical signal contains information about what is um, the recession velocities that of these uh, object because the universe is expanding that object is um appears to be receding relative to us going far further away and the ratio between these two quantities gives us what is the rate of expansion of the universe today and this is fantastic because it is very difficult to measure precisely distances to um cosmological objects without a number of uh, complicated systematic uncertainties coming in. And gravitational waves provides us a clean way of measuring the distance. But it doesn't provide information about the recession velocity. You only can do this measurement if you combine pieces of information from both sides. So you can tell by the optical observation that you were making, you can tell how fast they're receding from us, how how far apart they're being pushed from us by dark energy, which is really your main uh, study, isn't it? Exactly. That is precisely my motivation for pursuing these events. Dark energy is such an interesting and dark concept in the sense that it's <laughs> hard to see into. When I first heard that the universe was... And not only expanding, but expanding at a faster and faster rate and accelerating. It, it just amazed me because I was I had always thought that it would collapse. It would expand for a while and then gravity would pull it back. And that's not happening. But then I heard about inflation early on in the universe. Is dark energy just inflation going on, or did inflation stop and then after a while dark energy started for some unknown reason? Oh, you're asking the million-dollar question. We well, don't I'll, know. I'll take it in cash. <laughs> uh, I would gladly give it to you if I knew the answer. <laughs> um, we don't know. Uh, it's You're right in um, that... 
there appears to have been in the history of the universe two eras of accelerated cosmic expansion. The inflation era in um, the first instance after the Big Bang, and what we call the late time acceleration era or the dark energy era, which is happening now as we speak, or in, in the last five billion years. In between, what was there? It just, it stood, it stood still? No, no, no. In between these two eras, the universe was expanding. It was just not accelerating, but it was expanding. I see. Expanding, but not as fast. Exactly. So five, about five billion years ago, it started picking up speed again. Now, it could be that the same mechanism that operated early, for some reason, switched on again right now. Um, but it could also be that those two eras of accelerated expansion are due to two different phenomena that are not necessarily, you know, related to each other. Right, right. Um, we don't know. There are many things that are different between the early universe and now. For example, uh, the early universe inflation was a very short period of time where the universe expanded at an exponential rate for a fraction of a second. While the current era of dark energy, it has been going on for the, you know, for the last five billion years. So whatever it is that is happening now, it is um, much more um, gentle, so to say, mm. than what happened early on during the inflationary time. Um, but that is one difference between the two. But we actually don't know uh, what is the nature, and that is an active topic of research right now, is to figure out um, what what's going on in these two periods of accelerated expansion, and are they related or not? We don't know. So while I was shaving this morning, I was thinking about the accelerating universe, <laughs> something I often do while I'm shaving. And I, I was wondering, on August 17, 2017, you, you were beginning to observe the optical aspect of the collision of two neutron stars. So if the universe is expanding, I thought, while I was shaving, and expanding in an accelerating way, why are these neutron stars floating around into each other? Why aren't they expanding away from each other? And then I thought, as I washed off the shaving cream, <laughs> is it because the expansion of the universe is only affecting whole galaxies, and within those galaxies, stars are moving around and colliding, or black holes are doing that? Precisely. It is, I think, equivalent to um, thinking, for example, about the difference between the scale of, say, the solar system mm -hmm. versus the scale of a human being on Earth, right? Um, the entire solar system, in that scale, it's gravity that is um, uh, governing the movements of the planets and so on on that large scale. So you can imagine now going further out and thinking on the largest scales, then you're seeing that this cosmic expansion, it is uh, measurable and it is experienced by the galaxies as a bulk body. And within the galaxies themselves, uh, in those scales, we don't really experience the effect of the, this cosmic expansion. 
When we come back from our break, Marcella Soros Santos tells me how her childhood curiosity that was aroused by thunderclaps in the Amazon rainforest led to her studying the much more massive thunderclaps happening light years away in space. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. And also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters and interacts with science and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Marcella Soros Santos. All the things we've been talking about are happening far, far away <laughs> and far back in time. How, how did you get from a child to this? What drove you toward, and it looks like it's driving you in an accelerating pace, what, what, <laughs> drove, what drove you toward an interest in dark energy? My interest in science started very early on, I didn't really have um, a word for physics, but I already had lots of questions as a kid. And I think that um, trying to answer uh, those questions and trying to then go after the next question and the next question is something that is really thrilling to me, you know, to, to learn more. And I thought when I learned that, that there was a profession out there that would allow me to make a living out of answering fun questions, I thought, oh, that's what I want to do, right? Um, then years later, when I was already um, at the university uh, in college, I remember attending a seminar about cosmology, the expanding universe, and uh, somebody mentioned the fact that the expansion of the universe was accelerating. And I was like, oh, how is this possible? <laughs> and, and clearly that was the, the question that I, I, I had to answer, right? That I wanted to, to, to get interested in. And um, this was um, my interest in this specific topic of dark energy, I think, started there. Uh, my interest in, in physics and how the world works uh, started much, much, much earlier. Somebody told me that you had a, a curiosity as a child about thunder and lightning. Oh, yeah. what, 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 what was that? Probably the first moment where um, I realized that sometimes physics can be really counterintuitive and really exciting. And... I lived in a place where there were lots of storms. I grew up in uh, a small town in the middle of the Amazon forest. And um, it's it's called the Amazon rainforest for a reason. And, <laughs> and so I would sometimes have this very loud thunder and, and, and lightning. And you would clearly notice several seconds of difference between the two. And 
for me, that was almost like magic, right? How can this be? And I remember uh, a teacher telling me like, no, 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 this is happening because the light travels faster than the sound. And I'm like, wait, what? How can this be, right? How is this possible? I really had to know more about it, right? I had to understand what what really was, uh, you know, underneath all of that. And then decades later, you're studying the con- confluence of the chirp of the gravitational <laughs> wave and the light from your camera picking up the explosion. That you you finally put them together. You can the way you got. <laughs> You got an answer to your early question in a way you didn't expect. Definitely did not expect the getting uh, to connect or getting to go full circle on that particular uh, point of curiosity, right? But I find it really spectacular that um, we can use this analogy, um, even though it is clear that in this case, the two waves do propagate at the same speed. So the analogy doesn't go that far, but uh, it is uh, something that is close to my heart that we can um, go all the way back to thinking about how waves propagate in space as a way to understand how the universe works. So it's a long distance from the Brazilian rainforest to Fermilab, which is when I think you came to the United States. Mm -hmm. What was in that trip? What's your background as a scientist? As I mentioned, I grew up in uh, the Amazon forest in a place called Serra dos Carajás. My father worked for a mining company, and that is a lot of uh, uh, mining that happened in that region. So my family is actually from Vitoria, which is a town on the coast of uh, Brazil. And um, after my father retired from his work, we moved back to Vitoria. That's where I went to high school and then to university. And um, once I finished my uh, degree in physics, I went to Sao Paulo for my PhD. And while I was in my second year of the PhD studies, um, I um, got a fellowship to come to the United States to Fermilab, where I joined a research group there to do the research for my thesis. That was in 2008. And then after that, I went back to Brazil, finished my thesis, and came back to Fermilab, this time with a job there, uh, working on the Dark Energy Survey. That's really exciting. You know, in this season of shows on Science Clear and Vivid, we're talking to women scientists And the question comes up in almost every conversation, did you have two jobs to do at once to become the best scientist you could and to be accepted as a scientist, regardless of the fact that some people might not have felt a woman would make the best kind of scientist? Did did you experience that or, 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 or did you have, did you have a way early on of handling it that didn't cost you energy? I think it would be hard to find a woman that says it was uh, um, they were spared from this, right? I think that this is a problem that is um, very common. Uh, although we have made progress in this area, we clearly did not make uh, enough progress. So it is still a problem. But I also think that as my career progressed, this question is less prominent. Right. So I think that the challenge still exists, but it comes in and in, in, goes in different ways. Early on, there was a stage where I, I think I went went through a phase of um, trying to find my own place. Right. And trying to make sure that um, the work I was doing 
it was as good as it could be and that I could also be recognized for that work, right? And um, eventually things worked well, out well. I feel that I am uh, happy uh, with the work that I'm doing and also um, with the fact that this work is being recognized um, in the community that I, I work in, right? Um, but it is a challenge and sometimes people talk about uh, it feeling as if you're doing um, two jobs in one, right? But I also think that it is um, um, a challenge of being a human in a society that is not perfect. And as we make progress in it, we also have the opportunity to transform because as I advance in my career, I also have um, more opportunities to, um, you know, create an environment for um, my colleagues, especially younger colleagues that are coming up and, and, and becoming a scientist or, or, or want to. And um, I hope that I can uh, help them in that way. You know, you reminded me of Marie Curie when she was teaching young women scientists. She would say to them over and over, you can't make a single mistake. You have to be extremely accurate. Now, that's true for any scientist, but I, I always wondered if part of that was if you're caught making a mistake and you're a woman, it'll be more costly. Do, do you find that that element comes in when you're training or mentoring younger women scientists? I think it is a difficult responsibility as a mentor, right, to find the right balance of things. but we need to make sure that, um, at least to the extent possible, that we um, give people the opportunity to mitigate what will be perceived as weaknesses. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, the idea of making mistakes, we are all human, so scientists do make mistakes, and um, hopefully they will be caught before they go out of the door, and we don't see necessarily all of the scientists being uh, suffering because of those mistakes and at the same level that you see people from underrepresented groups sometimes, right? Mm, yeah. And um, so because of that, if I ignore that fact and don't uh, bring this up when I am in a mentorship relationship with a younger uh, scientist, my uh, perception is that if I don't do that, I am allowing them to go out into the world unprepared mm. on, on a point where I can provide some insights about that. And it's the same thing with other, you know, sometimes smaller uh, components. Uh, for example, communication mm. is um, a key aspect where um, I think that women are judged more harshly than men. Why? In what way? That's an interesting thing. So, for example, uh, imagine that two speakers are going to give a keynote presentation at a conference, right? And on the other side, uh, we know that the perception of the audience oftentimes is, um, is, is biased in the sense that um, male speaker tends to be, um, everything else being equal, it tends to be perceived as perhaps more competent or more engaging and so on than, than the female speaker. So I think that uh, preparing for those presentations with that particular 
potential weakness in mind, I think um, may be helpful in, in developing a, a different strategy as a speaker or, you know, and then it, then it varies. The person has to figure out what particular strategy they want to adopt. But um, I think that being aware of the potential issue is, is important. And as a mentor, I try to um, provide you know, my mentees with um, the support they need to identify those issues and try to overcome them. Yeah, that sounds really well thought out, that you prepare them with strategies in advance, strategies that are that suit them best mm-hmm. and, don't, and don't force them to wing it when they come up against roadblocks that you know are there. And you, you can mm-hmm. you can help them in it with the advanced preparation. That's great. I've, this has been such a wonderful conversation for me. I've learned so much, and I <laughs> and you're you're a really good teacher and communicator. And I <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, we always Thank end you, our right? show. Oh, oh, it's just been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Are you game for them? Yeah. Yeah. Of all the things we've talked about and things we haven't talked about, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood what dark energy is. <laughs> uh, that is, I think, uh, going to be a lifelong pursuit, but it is uh, the question that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> okay, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Point blank. We're going to go this <laughs> uh, I think it's because I'm married to a German, but I really appreciate the uh, being told this type of thing right, right, you know, uh, straight away. So I think that that's the, the <laughs> that's probably the best approach. Third question: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, they must ask you strange things about dark energy. Yeah, they do. So, um, oh, okay. So one of the strangest questions that, uh, come, come up is about, um, what is really going to happen if the expansion of the universe is going to take over and tear our planet and our bodies apart, right? Um, well, People seem to be um, concerned um, <laughs> about the fate of the universe at, at, the, at its last the final moment. And I often find it interesting to see how uh, this image captures people's imaginations, right? As if uh, imagining really uh, being stretched out to the limit and, uh, <laughs> and seeing the world um, yeah, fall apart. But as long as we stay in our own galaxy, we're, we're, we're probably okay. We'll, we'll be intact. Probably <laughs> yeah. is really reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> Next question: How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, you disconnect from the Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> you just pull, pull the plug. <laughs> pull the plug in this uh, day and age with everything being remote. That is that one is uh, is easy. <laughs> okay, let's say you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person? I start by asking a question about what you know, what they do, what they're interested in, and. Um, 
say, oh, I'm an astrophysicist, so let's talk about uh, what's going on. That usually is a good uh, conversation starter. <laughs> when you say you're an astrophysicist, does that open up the conversation or shut it down? Usually that opens it up. It shuts it down if you say you're a physicist somehow. But yeah. I think that the astro, uh, the that astro, connects with people. The astro part is good. <laughs> that connects with people. Okay, next one. What gives you confidence? I like to think that, um, you know, I came a long way from where I was born and um, it's where I am right now. And I often think of that as, um, you know, as a reminder, right, that uh, you can always do one step at a time and, and, and keep, you know, looking forward that um, that is the, the, the thought that helps me sometimes when things get rough. <laughs> Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, OK. So it's, it has nothing to do with science. Is that OK? Sure, of course. <laughs> yeah. A um, Hundred Years of Solitude. Um uh was a book that I found mesmerizing. And um, this was, I remember at a time when I was in high school and I had a long commute um, by bus. And so I always had some book with me to read, right? But that one was one like I managed to miss my stop twice to continue <laughs> reading. <laughs> and um, the entire imagination and the scenario, maybe because it is close culturally to Latin America and also has the fantastic world um, at the same time very connected to um, uh, issues in society and so on that are similar to what we see in Brazil. Plus the language, the way it's written. I, I, I thought that that book was amazing. And for a very short while, I even considered, um, you know, switching my plans from studying science to actually studying literature because of that book. I didn't follow that route at the end, but I thought that this was absolutely amazing. And to this day, I think that um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is uh, in, in very close to my heart as, as one of the uh, greatest authors. Oh, that's great. I love that book, too. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> that this this is a conversation is one of my favorites too. I thank you so much. You've been just <laughs> thank terrific. you. This was wonderful. A pleasure. Thank you. This has been science clear and vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity asking of nature, why is that? Marcella Soros Santos is Assistant Professor of Experimental Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Michigan. In 2019, she was awarded a Sloan Research Fellowship, one of the most competitive and prestigious awards given to early career researchers. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Caterina Vernieri. 
another young woman with a passion for wanting to answer some of the most fundamental questions about the universe. And I think I really got into particle physics when I saw one of the experiments uh, for the first time that was trying to analyze uh, the collisions of the accelerator in Chicago. And it was such a complex object and millions of cables getting out of it and a lot of scientists cooperating around the world, around the clock in order to understand uh, the results of those experiments. And I just realized I want to be part of it. Uh, that it's an amazing field where everybody can contribute and answering fundamental questions that I was very hungry for having an answer. Caterina Vanieri, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.